Merry Christmas. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, if you're a guest with us, I assume that some are uh, visiting family, maybe in town. My name is Clint, lead pastor, one of the elders of this church, and just want to say welcome to you. Glad that you're here. Uh, some of you may uh, have done like the Dars family and had Christmas morning, uh, yesterday morning. Some may have gotten up early this morning or been woken up early this morning by your children uh, to do it this morning. Now you have angry kids ready to get back home and play with new toys. Uh, but whoever you are, however you got here, however you chose to be here, again, welcome Glad that you're with us and worshiping the Lord Jesus this morning. King's Cross, uh, I want to address you for just a second. It's been a sweet year uh, in the Word together as we've studied. Just kind of want to remind you, uh, we opened the year in our study of the book of Exodus and looked at the first portion of Exodus where God redeemed his people out of slavery. Uh, the other pastors, as they preached, preached through the minor prophets. And so you got overview sermons on six of the 12 minor prophets and then we've spent this last half of the year in Matthew, and Pastor has, as he preached throughout the year, preached through Philippians. And so you've been exposed uh, to different genres of Scripture all throughout the year, revealing this one glorious message of Christ in his gospel. Lord willing, next year we will uh, jump back in next Sunday, Lord willing, to Exodus. Uh, we'll also finish up Exodus next year, Matthew next year, and the Minor Prophets again, Lord willing. But this year we're going to finish off on Christmas Day. By letting King Jesus address us on the dangerous allure of earthly treasures and the glorious promise of eternal treasures. So this is going to be a stark contrast. There's something to be wary of, something to be alarmed by, something to be aware that you might be seduced away from him by, and that is earthly treasures. But there's also this great promise of eternal pleasures, that which so supersedes anything beyond your wildest dreams. It would say you fight fire, the temptation of this fire, with the promise of this fire. Greater pleasure, greater joy in Christ. From the main idea this morning, don't let earthly treasures seduce you away from Jesus and the eternal treasures he promises to his followers. Don't let earthly treasures seduce you away from Jesus and the eternal treasures he promises to his followers. Let's pray one more time and ask for his help, and we'll jump into the text. Father, we pray even that in Jesus' name. Help us not let earthly treasures seduce us away from our Savior. Help them not seduce us away from the eternal treasures he promises to all his followers. By your Spirit, help us to see the glory of Christ, the glory of the age to come, and help us rightly enjoy the good gifts you give in this life, but to not make gods out of them. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So I just want to look at this contrast together this morning in those two parts. First, the dangerous allure of earthly treasures. The dangerous allure of earthly treasures. Now, I wonder this morning, even on Christmas morning, as we think about opening up new presents, as we think about, you know, our children or even you anticipating throughout the year what you might get for Christmas and looking forward to that moment, I wonder if you would think about this morning also, what are the greatest threats to your soul? What are the greatest threats to your spiritual life? What is it that could most easily ruin you spiritually? What could cause you the most danger or harm? What is it that might tempt you to actually walk away from God altogether? Deconstruction is popular in our day, usually foolish and rebellious, 
sometimes helpful, rarely done well. What might tempt you to deconstruct your faith, to walk away from that which you believe about God? What, what might hypnotize you to spiritual sleep? Sexual sin is surely a threat. Perhaps it's a desire to climb a corporate ladder. Maybe you've been hurt by a Christian or a so-called Christian, or maybe you've been hurt by a church or a so-called church, and so you're tempted to just abandon it all, to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Maybe you care more about your reputation among men than you do your reputation before God. Maybe it's money and possessions. Maybe you're not sure. Jesus' interaction this morning with the rich young ruler can help you discover those threats. Now, this interaction that Jesus has with the so-called rich young ruler is built around three genuine questions. And we know even from uh, the synoptic gospels, that is Mark and Luke, from their accounts, that this man approaches Jesus humbly and bows before him, calling him good teacher. So these questions are not like the questions we've been seeing Jesus ask previously in our studies where people, maybe the Pharisees or scribes or the Sadducees are trying to trap him and catch him. So they're asking a question, trying to get him in trouble. Instead, this is a genuine question. These are genuine interactions saying, Jesus, I have a concern and I'm asking this rabbi, this one who's, I'm hearing your reputation and your teaching, your ministry and the power you have. And I just want to know, what do you have to say to these questions? What are your answers and so let's look at each individual question and the answers Jesus provides in order to see this dangerous allure of earthly treasures. Question number one, the rich young ruler asked, what must I do to have eternal life? Again, look at verse 16. Behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, or again in Luke and Mark, good teacher. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now again, this interaction is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels. This man is bowing, he's humble, he's pleading, he's asking, and his topic is simple enough. How can a sinful man get right with a holy God? How can a sinful man understand and believe and know that when it comes to eternity, I'm safe? How can I know that I've done enough to enter into eternal life with joy? How can one find salvation how can one find that eternity is something they can look forward to? What does it take to get in? How does one know you've done enough to get in, to please God and enter heaven? Friend, there's no important question for you to find an answer to. Then how can a sinful man or a sinful woman get right with the Holy God? There's nothing more important than that. And there's no answer you should seek like that answer. The wise author of Ecclesiastes says this question exists deep in the recesses of every human heart. That eternity is written on the hearts of humanity. Now sure, atheists and agnostics may suppress that truth and push it far away from their hearts, Romans 1.18. But God has made us in his image, even as Pastor has prayed. And being made in the image of God, we understand just intuitively a few things. There is a God. He is holy. We are sinful. That's a problem. Now, we can suppress that truth, we can ignore that truth, but that truth is written into our very being. We are eternal beings. There is an eternal God. There is eternity in front of us. So how do we know, again, where we will spend the afterlife? In eternal peace or eternal judgment? But notice when the young man asked Jesus this question, he asked it with a deeply flawed presupposition. Deeply flawed presupposition. Notice what he says. Teacher, what Good deed must I do to have eternal life. 
His presupposition to enter eternal life is, I must do a good deed. So he approaches Jesus with this presupposition and says, which one should I do to get in? So there's a massive flaw in this problem. There's a flawed presupposition in our natural and sinful minds. And understandably so. If we've done something wrong, the natural assumption is we must do something right to fix that wrong. So that's just the natural mind. This is not the spiritual mind that Paul talks about in Corinthians. This is the natural mind. Natural mind is, I messed up and did something bad. I must do something good to make up for that bad which I did. So if I have eternity written on my heart and I know God is eternal, that I'm eternal, I've done something bad and I'm going to face judgment, then I'm thinking what good deed must I do to get in his graces? This is the young man's presupposition. This is the flaw in his thoughts. So notice how Jesus answers. He basically says, keep the commandments. Okay, if you want to play that game, what good deed must you do to enter heaven? Keep the commandments. Look at verse 17. And he said to him, so he highlights this, the flaw in the presupposition, but then basically says to him, keep the commandments. He said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you'd enter life, keep the commandments. Now, again, what we know about this young man, he clearly knows the laws. We'll see in just a minute. Because Jesus is going to rattle off the second uh, tablet of the Ten Commandments. And the young man's obviously familiar with them. He's going to say he kept them. So this is, a, this is an upstanding moral man. But he's asking the question, how can I be good enough to get to heaven? How good is good enough? What good must he do to make it in? And he wants to hear what this rabbi from Nazareth has to say. But do you notice the ironic contradiction that lies in the instinct of every sinful human being. This presupposition that's flawed, do you see the contradiction in it? Again, as I said earlier, we know we are eternal. We know there's an eternal God who we must give an account to. We know that we're flawed. Like, what's a popular quip? We are like, yeah, nobody's perfect. So you don't have humans running around naturally just saying, I'm perfect. No, no, no. Everybody's going to, nobody's perfect. We all understand that. We know we're not naturally good, at least in some small ways. Everybody in this room has gone through phases of rebellion at some point in their life. Whether it was hidden in private or in public, you rebelled. We all have regrets. We all have intended to do something good and left it undone. We've all intended and committed to not doing something bad and then did it anyway. We've all said something bad about someone. We've all hurt someone's feelings. We've all neglected to pursue God like we ought. What if I could play your entire life on the screens behind me? No hidden moments. And not only no hidden moments, but every single one of your thoughts in captions on it. Nobody's comfortable with that illustration. Why? Because you know you're not good. <laughs> like nobody actually believes that you're good in a perfect sense. No secrets. See, we all really know three things, not just two. We know we're eternal. We know there's an eternal God who must give an account to. And we know we have a sin problem. We're not good. That's what motivates our angst. That's what motivates this young ruler's angst, as we'll see in just a minute. Yet that foolish contradiction is that we assume by our own effort we can be good enough if we get serious and try. So we know there's an eternal God. We know we're facing an eternal judgment. We know we're not good. And we assume to get right with him, we got to be good. <laughs> like, do you see the contradiction? Like, you know you're not good, and yet you're going to bank on your goodness to get right with God? Jesus exposed this young, young man's conception and ours that our understanding and conception of good itself is off. 
If you don't understand what good is, then look at God. He's good. <laughs> He's good. So compare yourself to God. How you feeling? <laughs> not good. So there's either God and good or not good. Where, where are you at? You're with me over in the not good situation. Jesus, even in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48, said, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You're perfect or you're not good. What is your option? If you want to know if you're good, compare yourself not to other flawed sinners, but to God. If you do, then surely you'll conclude with the Apostle Paul, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody else is over, him, over here with him in his goodness. We're all in trouble compared to God. But the young man, notice, doesn't despair just yet. Instead, he asks for more specificity. He doubles down. Okay, I get you saying keep the commandments. Well, which ones? So he's still going to trust in his own goodness. So let's look and see. Verse 18, which commandments? He said to him, which ones? So maybe he's thinking in his mind there's a ranking of good deeds in God's eyes. And so there's just certain, maybe there's a magic bullet good deed, that if you do that one, it makes up for all of the bad ones. Maybe it's just knowing which commands in what order and prioritizing the right things. But notice what Jesus does. He, he just quotes, uh, basically summarizes the second tablet of the law. All the laws concerning our relationship with others. And then he summarizes, he quotes Leviticus 19.18 and summarizes that law itself. So look at Jesus' response. And Jesus said to him, You shall not murder, sixth commandment. You shall not commit adultery, seventh commandment. You shall not steal, eighth commandment. You should not bear false witness, ninth commandment. Honor your father and mother, fifth commandment. And you shall love, her, love your neighbor as yourself, a summary of all of those. So perhaps this young man is thinking to himself, well, I'm good with those. Never killed anyone, check. Never committed adultery, check. I've never stolen anything, check. Never lied, check. I doubt that one, but amen. He, he said it. <laughs> I've honored my mom and dad. Uh, let's ask mom and dad, but check. And I love my neighbor as myself. All of them? But remember what Jesus said in, that, in response to that first question. No one is good but God alone. Has this man really ever been dishonest? <laughs> Did he always honor his mother and father? Now, again, to be clear, this is a good man by all the information we have in the world's eyes. Externally, he's the kind of man you hope your daughter brings home one day. So again, we're not talking about a wicked dude. Externally, it's like, man, this is a great dude. He's successful. Like he's used and stewarded his money well. He obeys the law. He's upstanding. He's a good citizen. So again, this man we're looking at is a man that you would assume, wait a minute, he ought, he ought to get in, right? If anybody gets in, it would seem to be he's a religious, moral, law-abiding citizen. And in verse 20, he confidently asserts, all these I've kept. Well, Jesus said, if those are the commands that are required to get in, I'm good, is his response. He's kept them from his youth, according to Mark and Luke. And yet, there's still something else missing, and he knows it. And perhaps some of you are here today feeling like, I've tried to be a good person in life. I've tried to do what God wants me to do. I'm a religious, moral, upstanding person, but I still feel like something's missing. What do I still lack? Question number three, he asked that. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Again, remember the contradiction. Jesus pointed out, no one is good but God alone. 
Yet he went along with this young man's question and answer session and answered him honestly. If you would enter eternal life, just be good and keep all the commands. The young man says, I have done all that. And he's like, what do I still lack? So the young man knows, well, no, no, no. Externally, I've done all the right things on the outside, but I know something is still lacking. The problem is, Jesus is revealing. <laughs> you aren't good. You haven't kept the commandments. Not if those commandments are according to God rather than yourself. You may have kept the commandments from your view. That's not the most important question. The most important question is, have you kept the commandments from his view? Now, we live in a culture in time where we think words and indeed morality have little objective meaning. And therefore, we can redefine them to mean whatever we want them to mean. But friends, God owns and authored the dictionary on morality. He defines good. He defines right and wrong. Not you, not me, not popular culture of the past, present, or future. You don't tell God if you're good or not. You ask him. So this is the whole problem with our current culture that assumes what I feel is right. Ask God. Don't ask yourself. And don't ask culture. Don't ask me. Ask God what is right or wrong. And Jesus has made very clear. No one is good but God alone. This means if you trust your own ability to satisfy God's law by performing good deeds, your good deeds will always come up lacking in the presence of God. Your soul will always come up lacking like something else is missing. I know that I've done some of these things, and yet I sense in the presence of God on judgment day, I'm still not right. If you're honest, you feel the lack that comes from trusting in your goodness. Why? Why is your good performance not enough? Why was this good young man's keeping of the law not good enough? Answer number three, Jesus says, you must exchange your earthly treasure for eternal treasures. Verse 21, look at Jesus' response to him. So he says, what do I still lack? Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Believing you are going to heaven because you're a good person reveals that you follow your definition of good, not God's. All these I have kept reveals he knows not the depth of his sin nor the depth of the law of God. Jesus makes it plain. If you would be perfect. That's the standard. Perfect or not perfect. Good or not good. God or fallen short of the glory of God. To enter eternal life, you must be perfect. And so he says to them, him, or to the young man in this response, if you'd be perfect, if you would fill up that which is lacking, you sense something's lacking, let me tell you how to fix it. Sell what you have, rich young ruler. Give to the poor so that you have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. Now what is Christ doing with this exposure of this man in this moment? Is he teaching that every single Christian should sell everything they have and give to the poor? Merry Christmas. <laughs> no, what, what's he saying? He doesn't. Jesus had plenty of disciples he didn't make this particular challenge to. Right? So the sensitive Christians in the room that think, oh my goodness, unless I sell everything, I'm not being faithful to Jesus. That's not what's happening right here. He's doing something. He's exposing something. He's going after something in this man's heart. This man has just said, all of these commandments I have kept from my youth. Jesus says, oh really? Let's see if you've kept them. All those possessions you have, 
Because you said you love your neighbors yourself. All those possessions you have, sell them all. Give to the poor so you'll have treasures in heaven, not here on earth, and come follow me. Jesus exposes the depth of this man's shallow obedience with one command. If you think you've obeyed God's commands perfectly, well then, rich young ruler, this should be easy for you. Give it all up and follow me. The one deed he must do to be perfect, he cannot do. What does he do? He walks away from Jesus. Now again, Jesus is not teaching it's wrong to have riches per se, but he's clearly teaching it is wrong for your riches to have you. It's not wrong to own things. It's wrong to be owned by them. And he demonstrates, you think you've kept the, the, the second tablet of the law, which talks about neighbor love. Let me show you how you broke the first commandment, no other gods before me. Money is your God. You're not even willing to follow me as soon as I go after your real God. And with one statement, Jesus exposes, you had kept the, uh, the, the second tablet of the law. You have broke all ten because you broke the first one. With one statement, he reveals, you have other gods before me. Now, this young man really thought he wanted eternal life. He really, genuinely, authentically thought he had obeyed commandments 5 through 10. And yet, in this moment, he finds and sees there is another God controlling his heart. Eternity is in his heart, but so is idolatry. I wonder for you this morning, is there an earthly treasure that if Jesus told you to leave behind, would tempt you to walk away from him and towards it? Jesus doesn't call every single disciple again to necessarily do this. He does call every single disciple to say, Jesus, you are Lord and nothing else. Is there anything else that he said, I want that from, trust me, follow me. You would say, uh-uh, not that. Functionally, there's your God. Functionally, there's you breaking the first commandment and therefore all the ones after. Now, money and material things are obvious, obvious potential temptation to us to walk away from Jesus, even as we see with this rich young ruler. We also see it with Judas, who betrayed Jesus for some coins. We see it with Ananias and Sapphira in the early church. The early church is like, hey, let's go all in and be generous and put everything in for the sake of the church. Ananias and Sapphira act like they're all in, hold some stuff to themselves uh, for their own possessions. Like, yo, you, ain't, you didn't have to give everything, first of all. Why are you lying about this? Money is a real temptation. Material blessings are a real temptation. Paul warns in 1 Timothy 6, those who desire to be rich. So this is not just for rich people. This is for, for those who desire to be rich. So poor people in the room is like, oh, well, bet it up. I'm fine. I'm not a rich young ruler. So no, no, no. Paul says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money. Not money itself, the love of it, the worship of it, the exalting of it to the place of God is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving some have wandered away from the faith like the rich young ruler and pierced themselves with many pangs. So, so money and material things are obviously a temptation, but friends, the lesson is much bigger than that. Any earthly treasure that could keep you from treasuring Jesus and giving him your whole life is a threat to your eternity. So again, what earthly treasure or relationship or comfort or security or power would lead you to reject eternal treasures and relationships and comfort and security and power? Bishop J.C. Ryle said, one idol cherished in the heart may ruin a soul forever. Be careful of the dangerous allure of earthly treasures, whatever those treasures may be. Is it any wonder that uh, the Apostle John would say in 1 John, little children, keep yourself from idols. Merry Christmas. <laughs> but seriously, 
The rich young ruler shows us it's possible to think we're good, upstanding, moral, even religious people. But if all God has to do is ask us to give up one thing and we abandon him, it reveals that we have a false God. But friends, I have good news this morning. God doesn't do this to this rich young ruler or even to us and make us feel uncomfortable and expose potential idols to be an earthly killjoy. No, no, no. Remember the original question was, what must I do to enter eternal life? That's what was at the heart of his question. Jesus exposed, you don't really want eternal life. You want earthly treasures. So this is why that Jesus had this interaction. He's exposing, you don't really want the thing you're asking about. You want something else more. But the rest of this interaction that he had was to reveal the man wasn't good enough and hope and, and point him to the fact he needs to despair of his own goodness and look to another. But Jesus, as he often does, takes advantage of this moment. And he turns to his disciples and he says, now let me teach you something about what you just saw. So he turns to his disciples, he turns to us and says, let me interpret for you what you just watched happen. Let me show you how immeasurably greater the eternal treasures in Christ are than anything the rich man walked away for. Second point, the glorious promise of eternal treasures. The glorious promise of eternal treasures. Look at verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus interprets what just happens. He says it's incredibly difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know how difficult it is? It's like the camel going through an eye of a needle. Or maybe for us in our context, it's an elephant going through a keyhole. Like, go ahead and make that happen. Okay, that's not happening. It's going to be a bloody mess if you try to make it happen or the elephant's going to trample over you. Something, this thing ain't going well. So he says, it's so difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible. That's how difficult it is. Now, back in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told us a parable about a farmer sowing seeds. And if you've been in this study, you will understand and think about this difficulty. So he tells about this farmer sowing seeds. The first seed that was thrown out falls on a hard path. And so the birds come and snatch it up. And he says, that's like when the word goes out and immediately Satan snatches it up, bears no fruit. He said, the second seed that goes out falls on rocky soil. So it shoots up immediately, but because the roots can't go deep, the sun scorches it, dies out, and that's what persecution comes. A person's like, oh, I'll be a Christian. Oh, life is difficult. I'm out. But do you remember the third one? The third seed fell on the soil, and it grew up over time, but with weeds that over time choked it out. Do you remember how Jesus interpreted this one, Matthew 13, 22? As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. Jesus says it's difficult, even impossible, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because of the dangerous allure of earthly treasures. That dangerous allure chokes out the desire for eternal treasures. But what is Jesus teaching? What is he saying us? If religious, moral, and seemingly a very blessed man like this can't be saved, then who can? Like, if a good dude can't get saved, Jesus, who can? And that's what the disciples are thinking. Wait a minute. Like, we aspire to be like this one. He's living a good life. He's upstanding. He's humble. He approaches you and bows. He asks how to get to heaven. It seems to be you've blessed him with material success. Like, if he can't get in, 
Who can? Look at verse 25. That's what the disciples say. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? And friends, this is one of my favorite moments in all of Scripture. Jesus looks at them and at us with the same eyes that looked upon the crowds in Matthew 9 and felt compassion. You can almost see the twinkling of compassion in his, and joy in his eyes. He looks at them. It's like a mother or father on Christmas morning as they watch their children open the presents. Saying, I love to see the joy that comes with those whom I love receive the gifts that I give to them. So they say, well, if he can't be saved, who can? Jesus turns and looks at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. No one is good but God alone. It is impossible for one who is not good to enter the kingdom of God and have eternal life. But nothing is impossible for God. So the man who's not good has no hope to get himself right with God. But nothing is impossible for God to get a man right with himself. Remember what he said to Abraham and Sarah. Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Remember what Job prayed to God. I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Did not Jeremiah connect God's creating power to the obvious implication of his omnipotence? Jeremiah 32, ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Now, I hope at this moment you're kind of wondering, what does all of this have to do with Christmas? We thought we were going to hear a Christmas sermon. What does this have to do with the birth of Christ? Well, again, man sinned against God. We've all chosen earthly treasures over eternal treasures. Man must suffer the just punishment under God's righteous wrath. Every man has the same lack that the rich young ruler had. And no man can save himself, no matter rich nor poor. Moral nor immoral, educated or uneducated, powerful or vulnerable, white or black, Asian or Latino, right or left. Every man, woman, boy, and girl is born sinful. So how would God save sinners? He must do the impossible. And how did he do the impossible? Let's turn to Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how would this be since I'm a virgin? Again, this is impossible. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And look at verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. 
It is impossible for sinful man to enter the kingdom of God. It is impossible for the sinful man to enter the kingdom of God. So the king entered into the world of the sinful man. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. The little baby in the manger was the king of kings and lord of lords. Come to do the impossible. C.S. Lewis captures this in the last battle. When Queen Lucy says, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. This king born in the manger we celebrate. Is the king come to do the impossible. Even more mind-blowing than the king of kings, the almighty Lord being born as a baby, is the king of kings, the almighty holy Lord being born as a baby to live a perfect life and then die a substitutionary death on Calvary. And he did so to save those who chose earthly treasures rather than eternal treasures, to transform our hearts and set us free. Only God is good. Jesus is God. The rich young ruler walked away sad. He refused to sell all and give to the poor and follow Jesus. But Paul, talking to the Corinthians, motivates their generosity. And how does he do so? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus was not a fallen rich young ruler. He was the king of kings and lord of lords. Yet he set aside his eternal riches and his eternal glory, was born poor to die in our place for poor sinners, our death so that by his poverty we might have eternal treasures. Christ, the God-man, was the ultimate rich man who gave it all away to the poor. He set aside his eternal treasures for earthly poverty so that you might set aside the poverty of earthly treasures for the glory of eternal treasures. Again, Spurgeon says those little arms in the manger will one day grapple with the monster death and destroy it. Friend, do you feel like something is still lacking? Like you aren't measuring up to God's standards? Learn from this interaction. Clearly what is lacking is not something man can do. For Hebrews tells us, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But all things are possible with God. Through faith in Christ, you can be saved. Through faith in the God-man, God is pleased. Merry Christmas. Christ was born for you to die in your place that you might be pleasing to God, lacking nothing. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Look to Christ by faith and you are declared perfect in Christ. Lacking nothing. So lay all your earthly treasures down. Give Christ your life and all the treasures like a blank check and let him do what he wishes with it all. If he takes them away, he takes them away. If he gives them to you to enjoy, he gives them to you to enjoy. But above all, treasure God's grace to you in Christ. And no, he's not holding out on you. He's immeasurably rich in grace and kindness. Anything he takes away in this life, he will give to you a hundredfold. Because at this point, again, Jesus uh, is with his disciples and he's interpreting for them what just happened. The rich young ruler walked away sad. He said, no, no, don't worry. I can save even one like him, which is helpful for you poor fishermen who are wondering how can it save you. Peter's like, okay, Lord, amen. Like, praise God. But like, like we've left everything for you. <laughs> like, what about us? And I, I love the humanity right here. Because Peter, literally, they've left their careers. They've left their families. They've left their homes. They've left their They've left everything to follow Christ. And so Peter's just wondering, no, no, like these earthly treasures I've left, like 
Like, do you just want us to be miserable? <laughs> like, is, is that what the Christian life is about? Being a masochist and just suffering till the end? And then suffer forever, like on some clouds, playing a harp and, and with those, like fat baby angels? Like the things we have in our head for heaven? Like, what, what really is going on? Look at verse 27. Peter said in reply, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Are we to try to stop wanting rewards? Is it wrong to want things, period? To have a home? Is it wrong to want some of these things in life that are such good gifts? Is Jesus saying stop wanting? Verse 28. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, or that is the regeneration literally, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will sit on the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone, everyone, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So notice Peter asks, like, okay, but, but what about those of us who said, okay, Jesus, you're the chief treasure and we'll follow you. We'll give you the blank check. We'll abandon whatever you want us to abandon. We'll receive whatever you want us to receive. Your Lord, your King, you're the treasure. Like what will happen for us? And notice he says three things. One, he says, in the new heavens and new earth, I'll be on my glorious throne. That's good news. <laughs> He'll be reigning and ruling. But number two, he says to these apostles, you'll judge, judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Probably what he's saying, and, and again, we're not going to get into the technicality of all, probably this judgment is for the 12 tribes of Israel rejecting Jesus as Messiah. They'll make that proclamation and have the evidence, the receipts to prove their guilt. But then notice what he says. All who have been abandoned anything for Christ's namesake will receive a hundred times more and inherit eternal life. So Jesus is not saying, like, earthly treasures are all bad. Be miserable and then go to heaven and hope you're not miserable anymore. <laughs> like, that's not the conversation he's having. He said, no, 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 don't exalt these to the place of God. They're not worth it. They'll be gone eventually. Instead of living for these treasures, live for these treasures that last forever. And he says, anything that you give up to follow me, a hundredfold is yours. In this life and the one to come, Luke and Mark tell us. So if you give up being close to your family for the sake of the gospel, he gives you a faith family and surrounds you with people that become mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and sons and daughters in the faith. He says, I'll give you all that you lose. I'll take care and meet all of your needs. And in the life to come, you can't even imagine. You can't even imagine glory. And I'm not, like, the, the chief treasure of glory is in being in the presence of God. But glory is going to be beautiful. Creation, the new creation is going to be beautiful. The, the, what we celebrate, what we enjoy, what we indwell, what we experience is going to be incredible. It's going to be better than anything you can imagine. So Jesus is saying, don't be foolish. Don't live for treasures that go away. These are so much better. I'll take care of you here and now. Don't live for them. Enjoy them. Receive them as gifts. Don't bow down to them. Don't submit to them. Please live for that which is more valuable. J.C. Ryle again says, Christ can raise up friends for us who shall more than compensate for those we lose. Christ can open hearts and homes to us far more warm and hospitable than those that are closed against us. Above all, Christ can give us peace of conscience, inward joy, bright hopes of happy feelings, which shall far outweigh every pleasant earthly thing that we have cast away for his sake. 
He has pledged his royal word that it be so. None ever found that word fail. Let us trust it and not be afraid. And Jesus concludes, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Remember, kingdom greatness, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is turned upside down. Greatness in the kingdom is not about domineering and having power. It's about humbly depending upon God and serving others as yourself. That's what greatness looks like. So Jesus says, when you get to this new heavens and new earth, don't be shocked when people who were super impressive here, eh, and people who you thought nothing of there, glorious. So he totally turns the whole thing. No, no, no. You be faithful to God. These treasures are coming, and you get to keep them forever. Eternal treasures are better than earthly treasures. I'll give a few reasons why. It's not rocket science. Few, few reasons why eternal treasures are better than earthly treasures. Number one, they are forever. Those treasures won't end up in the trash or on Facebook Marketplace in a couple years. Most of the ones you open this morning will. <laughs> let's just be honest. You forgot what you got last Christmas. So let's, again, celebrate, enjoy it, but just understand it's not worth living for. A phone upgrade. Really? You're going to get another phone that does the same thing the last one did, and you're going to spend $1,000 to do it. Like, again, like these earthly treasures aren't a big deal. They're not worth it, and they're going to rust. They're going to go away. They're not going to last forever. Eternal treasures are better because they're forever. No more need for upgrades or updates. Just discovery of perfection after perfection forever. In your presence, there's fullness of joy, and your right-hand pleasures forevermore. Live for eternal treasures because they're forever. Second, live for eternal pleasures because they're enjoyed in the presence of God with no temptation to turn them into idols. Oh, in glory. You're going to be able to enjoy all the gifts of God to their max in such a way that brings him maximum glory, you maximum joy, and blesses all those around you. And you need not worry that you exalt them into an idol. Oh, what it will be to enjoy all the gifts. Think about how fun Christmas morning is when you watch babies open presents. Incredible. Think about infinitely greater than that. No temptation to turn them into idols. You'll never have to be on guard and worried you'll abandon him for them in glory. Thirdly, eternal treasures are better because they're enjoyed perfectly with the entire family of God. No one ever will covet or steal or cheat or lie or feel neglected or mistreated or like they were dealt a bad hand. The presents you got this Christmas, enjoy them, but don't walk away from Jesus for them. Your home, your family, your ministry, your savings account, enjoy them, but don't walk away from Jesus for them. That's foolish. He's so much more and has so much more for you than they do. And in glory, Understand this, and I don't know all the mysteries of it, but we won't be mere attendants, but participants. Not mere peasants, but kings and queens reigning with the king of kings. I don't know how it all works out, but we're going to have authority given to us in this new heaven and new earth. We don't just get to hang out. like We get to be in this world and grow and develop. It's going to be infinitely greater than your and my human minds can fathom. So maybe a silly illustration to conclude. You can have $100,000 of earthly treasures now that will be spent and gone with nothing to show for it. Or you can have $400 trillion worth of eternal treasures to enjoy with God and all of his blood-bought family forever. Don't be foolish. 
It's an easy decision. It's not rocket science. Eternal treasures are better than earthly ones. Spend your earthly life, therefore, investing in eternal treasures by trusting in Christ with his people and live on his mission. I want to conclude with reading from the Apostle Paul. Great illustration of kind of the opposite. Maybe what happens to a rich young ruler when he's convicted, Jesus really is the prize. He really is the Messiah and says, I'm willing to lay down everything and follow him. What does the Apostle Paul say when he shares his testimony, even of his performance and the way he viewed himself before his conversion? Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Hear the rich young ruler saying, I've kept all these since my youth. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth, again, of eternal treasures as opposed to earthly ones, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the rights from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul said the exchange is worth it. Christ, I want the eternal treasures more than the earthly ones. So you take all of my earthly ones, tell me which ones to enjoy, and tell me which ones to give away. I just want you. And then know it's all in the end. You'll say, if I have Christ, I haven't given up anything. I only have gain for all time. Christ and his promise of glorious eternal treasures. That's why Jesus was born. That's why he lived. That's why he died and rose again. That's why he ascended and he will return. And that's the treasure of Christmas. So therefore, don't let earthly treasures seduce you away from Jesus and the eternal treasures he promises to his followers. Enjoy him now and forevermore. Literally forevermore. Let's close in prayer. Father.